again, everybody. Scott Bowden, right along ringside and ready to go with another big episode of the KFR podcast. The only Memphis wrestling show that has not one, but two co-hosts. And here to tell you all about today's wild and woolly romp through the territory's history is the Tim Woods of KFR. That's right. Mr. Kentucky Fried Wrestling number one, the great Ryan Last. So does that make Howard Baum number two? In in some ways, I think that's very appropriate. Hey, what a shitty thing to say. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, any truth to the rumor that you're considering changing the name of the show from KFR to Pardon the Interruption? Okay. Okay. Admittedly, Howard and I have been stepping on each other's toes a bit, but we talked it over like two professional, two men, something you know nothing about. Howard's got the heart the size of a watermelon last. A watermelon! And you've got the head to match. <laughs> I'll have you know that my noggin and thick hair is in direct proportion with the rest of my six foot three chiseled body. Did you say Chili's body? Hey, I will have you know that I have not stepped foot in a Chili's in years after being banned from one near Memphis State's campus. It's it's a long story. Well, it sure sounds like it is. But anyway, Scott, we've got a packed show today as you and Howard discuss the first bout between Lawler and Funk in May of 1981 that you were in attendance for following their infamous empty arena showdown. Together, you'll break down the entire card from Lance Russell's brilliant selling of the main event as something special to why the finish brought a tear to your eye. You mean my eye, my eye. I was a very sensitive young man back then. When the king lost, I felt his pain. When the king gets arrested or slapped with a lawsuit nowadays, do you feel that too? Hey, just tell the people what we've got lined up today, Davey. You and Howard will also debate the use of blistering chops to the chest in wrestling, which then segues into a discussion surrounding the mystique of Tojo Yamamoto in Memphis. Yes, and we'll also make like a Ginsu knife, slicing and dicing our way through the pop culture icons who appeared in Memphis in the 70s and 80s, including Lord Darth Vader, who took valuable time away from his plans to take over the galaxy in 1978 to appear in Memphis. We'll be right back with all that and more right after this. Until then, may the Force be with you. Always. Today we have a recommendation for Funk Brothers Automotive. To find a car repair service who you can rely on, who comes strongly recommended, really makes a big difference. If they're a family company, they'll fix them, they'll work them up, they'll sort them out. Right, the mighty double top Terry Funk. Do you see that behind me? Do you see it? You know what that is? That is Funk Country. Absolutely right. Before I owned that, my father owned as far as you can see. Before his father owned it before him. What I really liked was the good reviews over on Angie's list. People said, I can't say enough good things about this company. Someone else came in, they went to Funk Brothers, they looked for a new tire, that there was a problem with the tire. The person in the workshop looked over their tire and said they didn't need one, they just needed it patched up and it held together. I'm Marcus Freed. Thank you for watching. Be happy, stay happy, celebrate life, and drive safely.
Once you put motor oil in a can, you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't watch it work. So how do you know how good it is? Jerry Lawler wants to become a real Floridian, not a transplant. The king wants to become a Floridian. Well, I would like to know exactly how it feels to be a true Florida cracker. So I have Quaker State Super Blend motor oil, and I am going to show you people how it feels to be a true Florida cracker. And right here, I have five pounds of dirty, filthy dirt. And that's exactly what it is. And I have got this dirt entirely all over my body. And now, I know what it feels like to be a dirty, stinky, greasy Florida cracker. And it's something that I never want to feel like again. What I would like to do is to challenge that fool, Jerry Lawler, to this kind of a match to where he would go ahead and wrestle me. And if I defeat him, I get to take a quart of motor oil and pour over his body and take five pounds of dirt and pour that over his body and turn him into a dirty, filthy, Thinking Florida Cracker. <laughs> and we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And I have to say the response to my new co-host, Howard Baum, has been overwhelming. I think I've had three letters uh, in the past week, which is something because no one really writes letters anymore. These were actually handwritten letters that people took time to write, uh, mo mostly asking uh, questions about Howard. He's a virtual unknown in Memphis wrestling. Um, is Howard going to be with you every week now? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid so. Um, and if so, does he get a commission for every time he interrupts you? Uh, I'll let him answer that. Uh, Howard... <laughs> <laughs> oh my, I don't know what to do after such a dazzling introduction. Oh my goodness. Just a wash in the praise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, no. In all seriousness, <laughs> in, all, in all seriousness, we're uh more popular than uh when uh Coke changed the the formula back in the uh 80s. So we're uh, we're rocking more and rolling than grits and gravy. We're <laughs> exactly. We're rocking and rolling like Ricky and Robert, let me tell you. Um, and before I, I, I go any further, uh, you know, we mentioned some folks that we ran into uh, during the CAC reunion in Las Vegas. And I forgot to mention two ladies who I really enjoyed talking to for the very first time. Darla Staggs. Uh, now, uh, that's a name that I would see in fanzines, uh, in, you know, the wrestling news, uh, publications like that, that, that really were, uh, they relied on fan correspondence, uh, rather than, uh, the fiction that Bill, Bill Apter and his staff were writing and they were typically writing it very well. And the photography was usually better in those magazines, but the, uh, the other magazines, the rings wrestling, they, they were largely produced, uh, by fan reports and they were very thorough and they had the, the wrestling observer 
tight print because there was so much information packed in there. Uh, and I also uh, knew that she was close with Eddie Gilbert starting when uh, the young hot stuff became, when it was a mere spark starting out in the business, uh, working some dates in St. Louis. They were, you know, it was funny because back then, I think they were really always playing up the fact that Eddie, uh, who initially was billed as Tommy Gilbert Jr., and I thought that was always a tip of the hat to the Funks, because uh, I think uh, there was something about Dory Funk Jr., uh, that name, and carrying on that legacy that really appealed to Eddie. But right away to start working St. Louis like that was a huge compliment to, I think, Eddie's natural abilities in the ring, if not so on the mic. But yet again, it's one of those things that his it was almost like Tommy Rich. He, he had a clumsy charisma on the microphone that just endeared him to fans. And there's a picture of Darla and Tommy. Uh, Tommy Jr., <laughs> as he was then called, in Terry Justice's newsletters, uh, one one from, uh, gosh, I think uh, 79 or 80. And I swear, I, I, I thought it was an old photo of them from high school. I thought they perhaps they went way back. But anyway, I, I ran into her in, uh, in Las Vegas, and we talked for about 30 minutes about our mutual friend, Eddie Gilbert. And it's you can just tell... It still bothers her to this day, uh, the way Eddie's story ended, and uh, and it does me too. And so we we com- commiserated a little bit, but we also laughed a lot about the good times. Uh, we obviously knew him at different points in our lives, but he definitely made uh, an indelible mark on both of us. And uh, I, I know we'll both never uh, forget him. And Darla was also able to introduce me to uh, uh, Barbara Goodish, uh, Bruiser Brody's wife, who uh, recently appeared on the Viceland documentary along with her son. And it was great. And I, that was sort of the the, the way in, the way in. Uh, it was a point of conversation with her and with Barbara. And she couldn't have been any nicer. Um, I'm sure sometimes it, it's painful going to these events. But I think the, the way that she sees how the fans still honor his memory uh, is, is quite touching to her. Uh, and she couldn't have been any nicer. So I just wanted to say uh, hello to those ladies if, in fact, they are listening. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Howard's encounter with Big Red last week. And so... <laughs> I just thought I would I would mention two 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 ladies oh. as opposed to a lady of the evening, shall we say? Oh. Uh, Howard, did you, did you did you have the pleasure of meeting either one of these uh, women? And did you? I know that you were very involved in the WFIA. Uh, did you know Darla from from back in those days? And did you get the uh, Terry Justice newsletters? Um, I. Did I did back in the day? I was a big fan of uh, what was his. Remember when they were building him up to be a big tough guy? What was his nickname back in those days? Uh, who? <laughs> Eddie. Eddie Gilbert. Eddie Gilbert. Uh, well, it was TNT for a while. Tommy and Tommy and Tommy. Right. And then what was his big nickname after that? Oh my gosh, Golden Boy. <laughs> the, the Pooh Bear. All right. Pooh Bear. 
Right. How could you look who I'm talking to? He doesn't know. No, no, I know. And I asked, I asked Darla about that because I was like, I, I keep seeing the, <laughs> these t-shirts where he's holding a poo, uh, a poo bear. Right. He's, That's he's some wearing, gimmick, huh? Nobody beats the poo. Uh, it, 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 it confused me. <laughs> so, <laughs> was that like to get the nine-year-old market or something? No, she, yeah, you know what? Uh, I have to say she explained it and I totally forgot. This would be a great time for Captain Lou, uh, master of research, to pop in. With the, <laughs> <laughs> the origin of Eddie Gilbert's poo nickname. I don't, I don't, God only knows what he's going to come up with on, on that search. She explained it to me, and and but you know, I was like four. Uh, four drinks in over at TGI Fridays on my birthday. So I don't, (laughs) but Lou, when you're, when you're doing the search, make sure you don't put Jimmy Valiant poo. No, no, I'm going to include the H at the end of poo. Trust me. All right. (laughs) And by the way, by the way, Scott, I must commend you on that flawless segue from a, uh, heartfelt thanks to uh, a couple of classy ladies at CAC straight into the big-breasted hooker reference. <laughs> that <laughs> takes a certain amount of style points. Straight in. Straight into the complete burial of Howard, as usual. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm just relieved that you survived the encounter. <laughs> That's all. Hey, I'm how's your, how's your girlfriend Kamala number two doing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said Big Red. Big Red was always jolly (laughs) and happy. Uh, Big Red Splash. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She gave gave Howard the splash, or maybe he gave her the splash. I think he gave her, yeah. (laughs) Somebody splashed. Uh, Oh, my uh, goodness. For this kind of material, folks, it really should be a Patreon. Don't you agree? This show, it used to be family (laughs) entertainment, and, and now I feel like, you know, it's only... Adults are only going to listen to it like after nine o'clock after their kids have gone to bed. Uh, You're not- welcome. <laughs> oh my god! This <laughs> this will be forever known as the Howard Attitude Era of the KFR. You're right, exactly. Yes. Yes. Whatever <laughs> happened to that nice Scott Fountain? M- meanwhile, a show. meanwhile, our ratings are going down, which is. <laughs> <laughs> they're going they're going down like rick mccord on a saturday morning um, oh just wait it'll catch on you know which is a segue into uh you know i it's funny the uh, guys like rick mccord who kind of toiled in obscurity for uh, years uh never really quite caught on i uh, was always a, a a very capable worker uh, and he has that, that spot in Memphis that will be forever known as he was going to be the guy that Ric Flair was, was going to face. And Lawler does the, lays a little of that country drive on that we discussed, uh, about a month ago and gets, uh, Rick to get out of the ring. And Lance has that great moment, you know, where, where Lawler goes now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Rick McCord has ever won a match on this television. And Lance <laughs> lowers his head because he doesn't want to bury poor Rick as well, Jerry, I didn't. I don't remember it if he did, <laughs> which is just <laughs> and, and and Rick scoots out. And so, of course, when I see Rick at TGI Fridays, which is funny, when I was driving, I, I was in, I was uh, in, uh, or where was I? I thought I was in Big Sur, but I was actually in Joshua Tree uh, right before I went to Vegas. And we passed by a TGI, TGI Fridays. And I went, is that still a thing? Do people even go there? And then over the next 
three or four days, I lived to DJI Fridays at the, <laughs> at, at the Gold Coast because that's where everybody would converge and you never know who you were going to run into. And actually, one of the 605ers, uh, Nelly, uh, I believe I'm saying pronouncing that right. He must have been really tough. I for, believe uh, you're not. That would be Neely Shockett, my oh. good buddy, and his lovely wife, Lisa. That was going to be oh. one of my shout outs this week. Absolutely. They sang me. Lisa Shockett of the of the fine purveyor of the dried fruit fame inside joke between us but thank you very much neely and his wife are a hoot and yes. uh and at the end of her life she will receive quite a big medal well and they are uh <laughs> i think the only uh living relatives of former pwi hill columnist dan shocket is that right could be i believe that's correct <laughs> <laughs> I have to fact check. I, I have to fact, fact check it, but I believe you are correct. And 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 I was nearly brought to tears for uh, a few different reasons when they approached me at the bar at TJ Fridays and sang "Happy Birthday" to me at the top of their lungs in front of everyone. Uh, I'll I'll certainly never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you're surprised when they did it to three other people the same night. Oh my gosh! Was it, who else? Was somebody stealing my birthday thunder? <laughs> no, that's just a thing they do. It's like oh, they just go around, they just go around oh. celebrating. Oh, <laughs> was I supposed to give them? A, a little, was I supposed to give them a donation of some kind? <laughs> it's a little inside joke they do. She wasn't carrying oh. the basket. <laughs> well, and it was funny too because I wasn't quite sure who she was, and I, I saw him the next evening. I said, "I said, man, that was a pretty nice looking hooker you had there." And, oh my word! Yeah, but he laughed. He, he gosh, he, Howard, you're so serious that, sometimes. You're like, that, "Oh, that's that, that's too that, personal." I take things very literal. I'm half uh, Aspie over here. I take <laughs> things as they're presented. <laughs> well, which is perfect in the world of wrestling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But when I saw Rick McCord, I mean, I might as well have seen Ric Flair because I, I saw I saw his name. I go, Rick McCord. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the, the, you were in Memphis and, and you were part of that big angle. And you thought, you know, you've got to be in there with Flair and da, 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 da. And, and then, of course, you know, and I repeat, I, I, I assume that he'll appreciate the Lance line, right? Right. But not thinking of it from his perspective. And, and he, he did not even crack a smile remotely. Oh, <laughs> man. Because at first he goes, they came, they come up to me on that morning. They go, okay, you're going to go in there with Ric Flair. And he goes, my heart starts racing. And he's, I'm so excited. <laughs> and then they tell me how it unfolds. And it's like, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it, but such a nice guy. And one of those guys who, you know, eventually moved on from the business and, and started, uh, you know, fashioned a new career for himself and started his own business. I believe he's a hairstylist now. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm teasing there, but, uh, we may even have him on uh, KFR down the road to, uh, as part of our, it's a dirty job, but somebody has got to do it feature, which, uh, I think we've only done once with, uh, the late Jim Jameson, who was also briefly honored at the CAC in a, uh, really a touching video of everyone who has left us uh, in the past year to go to that great ring in the sky. So Howard, yeah, I'm looking a good guy, Jim Jameson. Yeah. You know, and I'm so happy that I was able to not only have him as a guest on the show, 
uh, talking about the last sellout at the Coliseum and that great angle with Dundee and Landell uh, just beating the shit out of <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, which brought out Jerry Jarrett, who Jim had no idea that Jerry Jarrett was going to make the save. And he goes, and he told me, he goes, I was about to get up and start making a comeback because this just keeps going and going this beat down. And he goes, and then I guess I'm so glad I didn't cause Jerry Jarrett at that moment flies by me <laughs> and enters the ring. And right. he goes, because it was you you would have had no any no idea that anything special was going to happen that day uh at all so he and I, I did ask him i said you know all the um cuz i went to bartlett high school the germantown thing was work folks in case you didn't know that um and the bartlett high school cheerleaders were in the front row you couldn't ask for a better audience that day because they're cheering in unison Right. They were the they were the national cheerleading champions. And they're also booing. You know, they're just the perfect. They should have had them there every week. Uh, but Jim gets sprawled out on the floor and he goes, I'm looking it up at all these pretty girls. And I said, I said, well, were you disappointed that none of them, none of them asked you to go to the prom? And he goes a little bit. And I said, boy, you got to get a figure. Lawler was uh, disappointed. He was out of the studio that week. Uh, but uh, <laughs> and he, and Jim goes, hey, 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 can we, can we, uh, hey, hey, let's. <laughs> let's, let's cut that out. But uh, in a in an unrelated phone call to Jerry Jarrett a couple of weeks later, uh, we were talking about just you know how all the parts of of the machine have to work in a wrestling promotion, much like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, there was a there was a you know, and he refused to call Jim a job man. He called him an enhancement talent, and he said his name was Jameson. And I said, yeah, Jim. And he told me, you know, and I think I've I know I've mentioned this before, but I I don't think I can say it enough because, uh, you know, Jim re- recently passed away. That uh, he was just as important to the success of Memphis wrestling in the early '80s as Lawler and Dundee, because he was always the man who would get in there first with a Rick Rude or a Randy Savage, somebody who they were debuting and needed to get over strong and look like a million dollars. So my hats off once again to Mr. Jameson, and it was a pleasure getting to know you, even for a short time. So, uh, changing gears here uh, on a on a much uh, uh, happier note, you know it's always uh, it's always nice to look back at some of the cards that I attended at the Coliseum. I got to go about five times a year growing up, and typically it was you know for special occasions like my birthday uh, in 1981. So many big names were coming in. Uh, to put over Lawler to reinforce the idea that he was a Superman. And so even though, you know, I I could either go anytime in the month of April or, or May, and it would still count as my birthday trip. And I was hanging on to that thing. Right. Uh, And after the empty arena match, you know, it, it clicked with me because it was just the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, And so on May 18th, 1981, which, is today we are taping this today um the drew 5718 fans including my uncle robert campbell and me because i just had to see terry funk out to get his revenge he ends up showing up like a crazed pirate you know with the with the, with the big eye patch <laughs> on uh and together the funks Still one from Jack Briscoe and Jerry Lawler. And the promo 
to set this thing up. It was just a beautiful job of of selling the idea, the concept of four former world champions, if you include the CWA title, being in the ring uh, for the first time. Uh, and I know, Howard, you've disputed that fact several times. That, that was not the first time. But anyway, it was Lance weaving this story. And then Lawler, ex- Lawler explained the whole deal uh, of why Briscoe would come in, who he had just beaten as one of Hart's bounty hunters a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, Funk was, you know, Dor- he explained the whole history of, of how Terry and Dory you know, basically screwed Jack Briscoe out of the NWA World World Heavyweight Championship and making three hundred thousand dollars a year, and it and that combined with the revenge factor. What is Terry Funk capable of? What's he going to do to Lawler when he finally gets his hands on him? I had to be there. Uh, and if you look at the card, so let's just take a look at the entire card. And Howard, I know you looked at this as well. Uh, in the opener, Tojo Yamamoto beat Ron Sexton. Now you knew Ron Sexton, right? He came to our thing, our WFIA convention in 1985. Very nice guy. Um, we didn't, uh, really discuss much, but he was a very nice guy. He was very game to participate in everything that we were doing. Um, but you know, in my continuing education of Memphis, I'm looking at Tojo and I mean, I really have to ask the people of the area and you in particular, because you're the one I'm speaking to, was he ever truly scary? Oh, yes. Because he's like three foot, because he's like three foot two. I, I know, know he's capable of doing stuff to people and I know he has a mean reputation, but he's like three feet two. It looks like Lance could take him at any given moment. No, 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 no. He's got a low center of gravity. He's hard. He's hard. To oh, take I was him. mistaken. And and that's, hey, the, that's known as the Ali Bay the Turk excuse. And hey, and I'm I, I'm I'm just saying, I'm just yeah right. I'm just saying those the chops were very believable. See Flair doing right. the chops, Lawler always hated because Lawler's like, you know, why would you chop a guy? Why would you hurt a guy? when you could punch him, you know, and if you're in a fight, if you're in a competition and if, if you can get away with punching, why not do that instead of the chops, the chops are ridiculous. And, and Lawler would always, there's a couple of moments in the TV bout even where Lawler gets stung with one for the first time. And he's like, shit, lighten up. And you can kind of see him uh, protecting himself. And, uh, and he acknowledged that years later to me that, that, uh, he didn't like that, that Flair did not like that at all. And he said, he said when Flair, put on that figure four, it was tight. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, hmm. cause you, you can hurt somebody with that hold if you're, if you're, you know, if you're not working light, which is, uh, well, you know what, what mentality I think drove flair and the chops was his early days breaking in with Wahoo and his breakthrough feud, breakthrough feud in the mid Atlantic. And that was Wahoo's whole deal. He's like, you better keep up with me guys like Valentine and Wahoo and race that flair always, respects and tears up at the mention of them. And I think in those days you had to be with as many girls and drink as much as you can and drive as fast as you can. And in the ring, the way to prove that how tough you were was, can you hang with Wahoo and his chops? And Blair internalized that and took that with him the rest of his career. Well, yeah, but there's logic there though, with Wahoo McDaniel throwing chops for some reason, you know, it, 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 right. for some reason, it, 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 and it's a tomahawk yeah, chop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know. And and again, we're 
hey, wrestling was built on stereotypes back in these days. And with Tojo Yamamoto, it makes sense. And it would almost make sense if you're in a battle with Wahoo to fight fire with fire and come back with, right, with the right. chop. Because you're in the position. If somebody chops you, you're in the position to chop them. It's just the natural position of your body. That's right. like, you know. Right. So a chop fest is... is, And by the way, okay, and by the way, as a kid, I agreed with this because, you know, you had your Orientals, as we called them back in the day, who are now known <laughs> <Whoa>! as Asians. <laughs> hey, hey, I didn't invent it. Yeah, you know what? And I... I, I my wife's British, and she doesn't say that word, but uh, but a lot of people in England still say that. Well, you know, I I mean, my friend who married uh, an Asian girl says an Oriental, the way you know the difference is, and this was when it was first became PC. I mean, in the old days, I mean, you know, everyone used to call everyone everything. Life was like a free-willing Don Rickles <laughs> skit. It's like every <laughs> names were flying everywhere. Now all of a sudden, you, you, you forget it. Back when, but, men, um, back when men were men and they drank. Right, right, right. Chopped each other. But check it out. I, okay, so so the, all of the Asian and uh, workers uh, had the secrets of the Orient on their side. So hence, a boring nerve hold, or as we call it in America, a rest hold, um, had some imp- had some um, weight behind it. Yeah. Same with the chops, because you're thinking you're educated that oh, Mr. Sakurada can chop somebody, and he knows just where to chop him in the throat, and just to, you know they have that Oriental training. And Oriental who training. Are the rednecks of the <laughs> South to disagree? They don't know. It just looks exotic. Um, but um, yeah, as a kid, I thought to myself, okay, you're in a real fight. Why would you do something like a chop or something a little fancier than an actual punch? That being said, look at a slugfest between a Terry Funk and a Dusty Rhodes and compare that to an actual boxing match of how punches are actually landed. Like, in what kind of fight ever have you seen 18 to 24 quick jabs and then a big wind-up and then a big finishing blow with the other hand? Wait a minute. Are you, say, are you suggesting that uh, Joe Frazier, uh, Muhammad Ali, never used the flip-flop fly? <laughs> Which uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Or Dusty exactly, would exactly. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and to, to your point, uh, I think everyone agrees. Lawler threw a great punch, and and right. first of all, I have to say, Dusty, yeah, Dusty, the, the punches were not were not good at all. The, the, and the uh, the, the look it, I'm, it, I'm, that I'm, that kind of a thing, you had to be there for Dusty. I'll defend Dusty on that because that was like the. The dusty jab spot was always hot. That was always good. So the jabs, jabs it is what it is. Bad. But the big, the jabs weren't too bad. But the big, but the big wind up punch was terrible. And the lariat, right, right. lariat his lariat was awful. Holy yeah, I, especially toward the end of like '88. Oh. Um, <laughs> NWA, WCW, everybody would just be standing around, and he'd just give a cursory lariat, like here's yours, here's yours, here's yours, you know. Yeah, 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 and remember that. Remember that video, little clip that they would play over and over of, you know, Dusty sitting around with Tony Schiavone and Willie Nelson, and he's like, "Uh, baby, he's like stand back patter. He's always there for me. He's like the musical equivalent <laughs> of stand back. You know, when I'm aching and I'm on the road, I put on some Willie Nelson, and in ways he doesn't even know he's helping me. And then it goes, 
into Hank. It doesn't even go into a, a Willie song. It goes into a Hank Williams Jr. song. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. And it shows him just taking out the horseman, <laughs> including this incredible oh over-the-top bump by J.J. Dillon, future KFR guest. Uh, and it's and it's one thing to show that once. They show on, on the syndicated worldwide show that we got in Memphis, and maybe it was because we didn't get the the uh, the promos, the localized promos. They showed that thing almost every single week. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Oh, and then they and they recreated that whole scenario when the Midnight Rider came because they had the same kind of vignette. And he was sitting out by the campfire, and he's giving his spiel about the one more silver dollar, and then it would go into the Willie Nelson one more silver dollar, and that was aired infinitum. Um, that was just Dusty's ego trip part of you know let me let me live my redneck fantasy or whatever you know like yeah. surround myself with all my Willie and stuff. Yeah, that well, all, all, right, but you know well, what I mean. Well, Lawler too, though. Like Lawler getting to getting to put on the Super King outfit and confront Batman. Right. All are wearing the uh, Gene Simmons kiss makeup to battle Kabuki. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just b- battling uh, Darth Vader in the world's first uh, Texas Death Star match. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he had, of course, the actual Batman and the non-actual Spider-Man. I don't right. know how many people out there have seen the um, the video of Lance and and King coaching it's- this Ursatz. Spider-Man backstage at some show for some I, big appearance that we're going to do in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, I mean, I, Lance I, had a better Lance had a better feel for the choreography of that thing than anybody. Well, sort of, but I, it's on my YouTube channel. What was great, if I can interject, Lance would come out like Lawler tried to school the guy and like, well, come out and come to this point, and then you hit your spot, and then you say this, and I'm going to say this to you. But then Lance is like, here's what you want to do. You come out and you pirouette like right here. Yes. Stop here. <laughs> yeah. I love that. How Lance yeah. is like giving the creative input. That was great. What Spider-Man never did. I mean, he would be, <laughs> he would be. Right, he, right. He doesn't, he doesn't it, okay. It, because of the fact they don't have web shooters, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's fact, let's, let's substitute the pirouette for the, uh, for the web shooters. <laughs> And unfortunately, there were no radioactive spiders to be found prior to shooting this, so he could not actually stick to the walls. <laughs> so let's just have him dance around like a ballerina. Uh, right. And it's one of the worst. Lawler, Lawler flubs the promo like two or three times. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, he's, and he's talking something like variety being the spice of life, and I thought he was talking about his love life for a moment. But, uh, <laughs> but, but no. <laughs> I don't know what he could possibly have against you. So, so after after building up Spider Man, who you would think if they're gonna if they're gonna do this, okay, you better go all the way with it. In his debut, right. he, he goes to a draw with Radamias, which Radamias must be pretty damn tough to get to, 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 <laughs> to last the time limit with the Amazing Spider Man. And also on that card, that same card was the Riddler. Poor David Schultz. Oh man, under under a hood, and I believe Kojak, and maybe even I think there was a card even with the Kisser, and maybe even Lord Darth Vader, all on the same card. Oh my God, that's like the whole ABC 1977 <laughs> primetime lineup right there. Jesus H. <laughs> all Are my you pop, kidding me? All my pop culture icons, including Lawler, on the same bill. I mean, it's See, really. I didn't. I, 
I didn't realize Spider-Man was supposed to be a worker. I thought he was just oh. going like, to make a special appearance, like sign balloons for the kids or something. I oh, didn't know no. that he was building up to, up to be a, a wrestler. Yes, yes, and you and and I and I, you know, I hate in all these superhero movies they always reveal the secret identity in the first one, and it's you know at least let the guy keep his secret identity a secret for 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 the first movie, maybe the second one, then it means something, right? But from what I understand, I it was Rooster Cogburn, ah, uh, and who you know went on to uh, well, not any kind of fame really. But he had that memorable uh, thing at, with, in uh, 91 with Lawler, where he, or in 1990, where he was going to get a shot at the world heavyweight title in this little town in Kentucky where he was from. And I think they had sold the building out two weeks in advance. <laughs> the whole town was there, which I guarantee you the heat must have been off the charts for that bout. And I bet, <laughs> Lawler, and I, and I bet Lawler sold huge for him. No doubt. My yeah, mind. no doubt. Yeah, I could picture that. Uh, and, and it kind of made me wonder, you know, gosh, you know, how how involved was Lance sometimes and and directing things and setting up interviews? Because it's very rare that you have uh, that that raw footage where it, you know the the prelude. Yeah. To the, uh, and it's and it's interesting to, to get to, to, to Lawler, who has such a grasp of comics and was a huge comics fan and, and was a huge Spider-Man fan to get Lance's opinion on that. But, but I think everybody sort of, in my experiences, everybody sort of chimed in occasionally. Dave Brown gave Eddie Gilbert a great line uh, for, for my debut and Eddie ended up flubbing it actually a little bit on, on <laughs> but, but Dave delivered it beautifully. Uh, I think, and, uh, you know, I know Kim Parnell sometimes chimed in with ideas and Randy West. And it was, it was like you said, like Mayberry, you know, where everybody kind of well, had, had to say. That's certainly what I witnessed because I told the story before of we were all backstage um, in 84, I believe, and Dutch Mantel was fixing to go out for a promo. And um, he's like, well, what should I say about this? Or what? And he was like working Frankie Lane at the time with Bambi. Um, and uh, Lawler just said some line about, you know, something about his ex-wife or something. And then 30 seconds later, Mantel was out there saying it on TV and it got a big pop from the crowd. And from what I witnessed and, you know, being around broadcasting and production myself, if anyone, I mean, like if you're a schlub sitting on the side, if you're pulling cable, you probably don't have any say. But somebody at Lance's level, anybody above a certain level, a Ken Parnell, a Lance, will you know be able to speak freely because in broadcasting, everyone is going for the same thing, which is you want the shot, you want the thing to work. So Lance, of course, had an understanding of camera angles and shots and stuff like that. And Lawler has an intrinsic understanding of that from day one. So, you know, some people just have that natural talent for directing a scene. You know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and like, I mean, we're talking like, uh, you know, Sam Raimi uh, and the first Spider Man movie. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> right. Really, yeah. Backstage at a high school in uh, Weasel Teat, Arkansas. I, I will say, I think Rooster Cogburn was a better Spider Man than Tobey Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was certainly a better jobber name than uh, Spider-Man. I mean, the guy should have stuck with his original gimmick. Oh, lordy, lordy. Excuse uh, me, enhancement talent. I yes, oh, I, cast dispersions. And I, and I have to say, I appreciate your, your use of uh, the phrase fixing tube. 
Just oh, well, see, when I'm doing this, and you know, we're going to have some pictures made later. We're going to make some interviews. I'm, I'm, I've been doing my research. I can speak like a proper Memphian now. <laughs> I can barely speak like a proper Floridian, but I can speak I, like a proper Memphian. I would rather you not speak like all the wonderful black people in Memphis who you mentioned. All right. Now, we're, don't start with very, that smart stuff very, in there about... They were very near and dear to your heart. Uh, <laughs> come on. You know I was serious with that. <laughs> I know you were. You know I don't see. You know I don't see color. Yeah, oh, people who know me know. People I, who knows me know that. I I can now vouch for that after the CAC. Um, ah, there you go. What move, more do I have to do? Move right. You were not only colorblind. I thought you were blind. Um, ah, that's a good one. That's the line of the show so far. There we All go. All right. Good night, folks. We're out of here. I don't mean the show. I mean the series so far. Since I've been here, that was the best one. That was uh, good. Let's let's move on to this. Uh, <laughs> this we didn't even get past the first match. <laughs> the <main> night- <laughs> see, that's the magic. That's the magic, folks. Good night. We'll see you next week. Uh, the nightmares, Danny Davis and David Oswald. This is uh, before I guess Oswald uh, bailed and they brought in Tim Allen. Or did Tim Allen? Oh, now I'm, now I'm getting mixed up. I can't remember if Tim Allen started out and then left. No, 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 no. That's right. I think Oswald started out left and then tim allen came in and i think it was an upgrade they beat a very capable team of eddie gilbert and coco Ware. that was probably a pretty damn good bout any thoughts on that (laughs) (laughs) might i interject this i don't have anything to say on that particular but i was watching some stuff and there's this big huge brawl in louisville and uh you know i know it's a small man's territory and everyone thinks lawler is small and everyone thinks Dundee is small because he is, but, and nothing against the nightmares. One of the best matches I've ever seen in my entire life was live nightmares, Danny Davis and Ken Wayne against rock and roll express in Memphis, 84. Oh, yeah. Um, but when they are in, involved with the upper main eventers, your Lawlers and Dundees, I, they look too small to be working with them. Um, I I don't. Do you I'm buy not, it when? Do you I buy it when the nightmares that. are beating on I, Jerry Lawler? It it looks like two cashews and a Brazil nut. I I don't I I don't know I don't know about that I don't know about that because Memphis it, it was always sort of a small man's territory and so yeah Lawler when he did have the size advantage over a guy that was that was certainly played up and utilized but it still made there was a t- a great TV match between Danny Davis and Lawler. Uh, I think it was his first. So this this is how highly they thought of of, of Davis. Uh, Lawler's first match back in the studio from the Broken Leg, which they did they didn't put him on uh, the free t you know the free television program. Uh, they certainly had him come in for interviews to talk about his big match on the comeback trail. But his first one was was uh, I think mid March, where he actually wrestled in the studio, and his first opponent was Dandy Davis. So uh, and it was and it was a competitive. Squash match, essentially. No, Wayne uh, and Davis were amazing workers. Galaxians, nightmares on their own, you name it. Even when, uh, was it Danny Davis or Ken Wayne who was the uh, the Jaguar? Uh, I believe it was Ken Wayne. And I think so. There, I think so. There, was one, there was even one called Leopard Mask, I think. Oof, that was brutal. Well, I think, no, no, I think Jaguar was when they were ripping off Tiger Mask in 84. But but the, at one point there was also a leopard mask though, huh. which 
Yeah. Or maybe it was thought went into that one. Or maybe it was leper. The slightly less successful leper mask. Uh, moving right <laughs> Don't along. shake his hand, kids. Don't shake his hand, kids. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what a gimmick. You can't you can't beat the guy. It, this sounds like a Jim Hurd idea. Because you uh, can't... That sounds like the dying days of LA. It's like the zombie against the leper man. Uh I did tell you that briefly for some reason. It was weird in Memphis. Occasionally, you would come on one of the UHF stations. You would get weird promotions. Like we had Portland for a few weeks. We had California Championship Wrestling with uh, Jack Armstrong. Are uh, in the dying days of that promotion. And I, by far, California Championship Wrestling was the worst of the bunch. Aye, aye, aye. And it didn't, and it didn't last too long. Uh, but on this night, uh, several great wrestling matches. Uh, well, not several, but a few standouts. Uh, Sonny King and Tim Leonard, who was a perennial jobber. So this tells me that perhaps I think Sonny King was he. I think he was mentoring Ricky Morton. I'm thinking that maybe uh, something happened with Ricky couldn't make it. And Jerry Jarrett's philosophy is if you have a substitute the baby faces to go over. And in this case, they beat the Turk and El Toro. One of which, one of those guys, I believe it was El Toro. Well, one of those guys was supposedly Francisco Flores, who is the guy who was supposedly under the hood, who some say was under the hood as Memphis Mascaras on January 29th, 1979. But uh, not going to go into that right now. Because, oh, we, because we... You. Because we've got Onita and Fuji, who one of my favorite teams from the early 80s to hold the AWA Southern Tag Team titles, managed by Tojo Yamamoto primarily, uh, and then Jimmy Hart. There was a great angle where Jimmy Hart stole the contract from Tojo, and the verbal assault between those two was absolute gold. Uh, in this case, they beat Dutch Mantel. And Plowboy Frazier. Now, Dutch, I've talked about this promo before. uh, And sometimes you can find it on YouTube and then it gets taken down. If you can find it, and I'll see if I can find it, maybe put it up on the Facebook page. It's one of the best promos I've ever heard. Uh, Dutch, there'd been no indication of a babyface turn. Onita, Fuji uh, were feuding with uh, the very popular team of Bill Dundee and the Dream Machine. The Dream was doing Dusty just as good as Dusty in in those days, and was just, just they had they had just tremendous chemistry. Anyway, so Tojo interferes. They throw salt, other. <laughs> Japanese stereotype. And the thing about Tojo that made him menacing is that he was so sneaky. He was always in the shadows and, and he, and you know, his size didn't work against him in that, in, in that point. And, and it made sense for him to throw those hard chops and he laid them in there. So that's what helped him get over uh, with the hmm. fans. And he, you know, and he looked like, yeah, he looked like wrestling's answer to Buddha, but uh, you try to you try to rub his belly and he'll beat your chest raw. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but Dutch goes, you know, he, he Dutch says that uh, Dutch runs out to make the save, and he when Lance asked him for an explanation, uh, Dutch who really was in Vietnam explained, you know, his uh, how he served his country. He goes and I he goes and I look up and I see three Orientals. <laughs> how dare you, sir? Be, that's what he said. Beating down two. Americans. And I looked over and there's a little boy 
with a American, little American flag that they that, that I think they were selling at the gimmick table. <laughs> <laughs> Conveniently. For, yeah. For a few bucks. Um, and he goes, he, he, he started crying and he dropped his flag. <laughs> and brother, something, uh, something inside me just snapped. It, I mean, I, I seriously, I, 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 I didn't see it for years again. And I, and I remembered, I remember just getting chills here and it was one of the best baby face turns of all time. Uh, but in this see, case, Mantel was a great underrated promo. Oh. And I want, I want to ask your opinion on this though. Do you think he had any kind of charisma? That's a leading yes. question the way I, I said well, that. But do you really think he had charisma? He, like if Lawler wasn't there, could it have been Mantel? Like you could almost see it being Dundee, but could you really see it being Mantel? Not not for as long. Not for as long. But for uh, for a solid year, yeah. Because for a while. Yeah, I would give good. you that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's the only one. Because he was a one. tremendous underrated promo. And, you know, as a kid, uh, he kind of was not on my radar and he wasn't one of my main guys and I might've skipped his promos, but now watching them later in life, he's a tremendous promo man. One of the best of all time. I would say he's yeah, he can be funny. Like that promo with Ian Cornette, where he's talking about, he's asking Jimmy, do you drink Jack Daniels? Do you snort cocaine? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> really? And, and Jimmy is like, no, of course not. Well, then you're not my kind of guy or something. <laughs> 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 uh, but when, when, but he could also get dead serious and he could turn, he, you know, he's one of those few guys who could kind of pull off attacking Lawler and Dundee, but still remain a baby face. Mm-hmm. And, and he's the only one who I know of in that prime, like 81 to 84 period who got consecutive clean pins right in the middle of the ring over Lawler. Uh, and the two were, you know, supposedly baby faces and Dutch would tell me, he goes, you know, in Memphis, it was, it was about 60, 40 Lawler. And I, I was, I, I attended one of those bouts and I remember being stunned that so many people huh. were, were rooting against Lawler. They were really building up Dutch as uh, Lawler's equal. And, 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 and what, and part of the thing that, that drove Dutch's frustration and hatred was the fact that Lawler would not admit that Dutch was a good wrestler. That yeah. Was, yeah. That was such a great era. That was such a great little feud there. Yeah, that it was one of those organic, like baby face, baby face feuds. And the thing with Dutch, I think where the people respected him there through his various turns is because he never did anything really nefarious. If you look at any of his so-called turns through his eyes, he's just telling the truth as he sees. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. through whatever phenomenon is going on at the time, like somebody might have a belt and somebody might not, and Dutch is just looking for his opportunity. And that was a lot of the ways the babyface versus babyface feuds took place there. And sometimes the guy would become a complete heel, and sometimes he wouldn't. And it would just, you know, he'd go back to being a face after the, the feud died down. But it was always based on, like, backstage um uh, shenanigans and stuff like, oh, you know, the promoters are all for you, and the, and they repeat that same scenario over and over again. Be it Dundee, Valiant, Mantel, but when it was Dundee or Mantel, it would always kind of be that it had that ring of truth to it. Like, oh, everyone's helping Lawler out. What about me? Yeah, 
Yeah, but well, yes, and, folks, and yeah. as evidenced on you know his recent WWE work and the Viceland stuff, Dutch is one of those great personalities that maybe is not as flashy or charismatic, but when you pay attention to him, he's really one of the best talkers ever. Yeah, and yeah, I think the Viceland series proves, and it's so it just warms my heart, man, to to hear this guy who really doesn't get his due. You know, he keeps getting these. You know, he got that shot with WWE. It didn't quite go right. as planned, but it, I, I, I put that mostly on creative rather than on Dutch. But still, there, there were some great moments, and now he's doing this, and he, he's just, a, he, he's just a natural born storyteller. And I, I did a, four, I did a, like a three hour interview with him, uh, and this is back when you know before podcasting, and you, and you transcribed the whole thing, and it was just great stuff. And uh, and I want to have him on the show again. We've talked about it. We're trying to to line up some dates. Uh, he, he's 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 now in demand, though, so it, it may be it may be hard to to get him. But uh, I I loved and Dutch would say uh, he goes you know but when we went to Nashville because I feuded with Randy Savage and I you know Nashville looked at me as being their guy. He goes it was about seventy thirty for me. He goes and after one of our bouts uh, where Lawler got the win, Lawler goes out to his car and and the fans have keyed it and ripped the antenna off. And he's the biggest baby huh. face in the, in, the, in the company. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Lawler thought that was absolutely hilarious. But uh, and I, and I asked Dutch because Lawler, you know, he never puts anything over. I said, "Do you think it bothered him in Memphis? The fact that it was..." And he goes, "Yeah, I do. That that it was that it was a sixty forty. And and if, but if you'll also notice, there's one show in particular where Lawler kind of goes with the flow." And, and is smirking, acting cocky. He had just won the belt back, and he and Dutch have a brawl in the studio. And it's it, Lawler's pretty much playing the heel there. So he, you know, Lawler was like, okay, well, if this is the way it's going to be, then I'm yeah, kind of like what The Rock did, you know, with uh, with, Ho- yeah. with, uh, with with Hulk Hogan. He just kind of, you know, hey, this is what the crowd's doing, so I'm just going to go with it. And fans always right. love that. Fans always love that side of Lawler, anyway. Right. Because so. that's the thing. He planted that seed early in his career. So when Lawler reverts to his old tactics, that's just par for the course. That's Subconsciously, they're thinking, well, that's why we love Jerry Lawler anyway. We love to hate him, plus we love him. Yeah. And it kept things fresh because if you're loving him 100% every week for 40 years straight, you're going to get tired of it. Because when we ran our convention there, some of the local fans were already tired of Lawler. They're like, oh, Lawler again, and Lawler this and Lawler that. I didn't agree with them at all because I thought Lawler was great. It was like, you know, it was my earliest exposure to him. I'm like, oh, these people, these people are just jaded. But um, yeah, and it's fresh. If he keeps getting, you know, if he's not always in the catbird seat, if he has to, you know, answer to some things once in a while or be heel, it keeps it interesting and it keeps him evolving in a way. So he's not well, the same old king like every week. Yeah, and and actually, I th- you know, we, you and I have talked about this. That in hindsight, I think one of the best things to happen to the promotion in the early '80s was Lola breaking his leg, and and making the comeback return. However, Jarrett was that was part of the reason why Jarrett was pushing the NWA board so hard for Lawler to get a run with the title. Not only because you know the local hero keeps getting these chances, he comes up short. 
the fans stop believing in it. And really, in a way, it kind of exposes the business because Lawler can beat everybody. And each title match almost ends the same way. You know, Lawler has the guy beat, then the time runs out, or right. you know, something, you know, something screwy happens, and it's just and, and man, a pa- what better place for a title change to happen? You know, Tommy Rich wins the NWA World Title in Augusta in front of like two thousand fans, a packed Mid South Coliseum, ten thousand people. Lawler gets that NWA World Title. That would have been absolutely huge. And right. I, I asked Jared, I said. You know, would Lawler have even wanted it? You know, given the fact that he ha- he hates the travel, and he goes, right, "Oh yeah, we right. talked, we talked, we talked about it, and we decided." Uh, first of all, Lawler at that time when he when he was younger, you know, seven like seventy six, seven seventy four through seventy seven, uh, Lawler was still really high on the idea of getting the belt because of the prestige it carried and the respect right. that he had for the past champions because he was a wrestling fan too. He remembers, you know, uh, Dory Funk Jr. coming in for title defenses and Lou Thez and drawing the sketches that he would send to Lance Russell. So he held that championship in very high regard. He would have endured, he would have probably hated a lot of it, but he would have endured. I think it could have worked. Uh, but the best they could get out of Muchnick was, uh, this is according to Jared, he had a meeting face to face with him in St. Louis was, as a uh, uh, one of those uh, one week title runs where Lawler would yeah. win it on Monday and drop it, I think I don't know in Evansville or Nashville on Saturday night. So and 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 Jarrett said I found that insulting and and I turned I absolutely turned it down. Which, but you know, if if in fact that conversation did happen, which I, I'm I'm not and I'm not you know I'm not calling Jerry Jarrett a liar. I'm just saying that things get sort of, you know, mixed up as time, as time goes on. Uh, maybe it was a casual conversation where they discussed the possibility. Uh, but he made it sound like it was like, this is the offer, take it or leave it. Yeah. Uh, and I can also see Jared, see, you know, the short term, like dusty took it for a week and right. it, it really kind of made dusty look weak and especially the way Dusty it's lost it back. It's a double-edged sword. The, the yeah. quick title loss is a very double-edged sword because in the same breath, you're saying this guy is worthy of being champion, but in the same breath, but he can't hang on to it. So is he really worthy of being the champion? It's like a nod, but not a full reign. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, it's like you're champion and yeah, technically you can claim that, but can you really yeah. they talk about Tommy Rich like they do with the Funks and the Briscoes and Dusty? No. Because no. during that, um, as a Floridian, it was satisfying to see Dusty win. I, it was never in the picture for him to be a long-term champion because he's a babyface, number one. The travel involved, number two. His responsibilities to whoever he was working for at that time, be it Florida or the NWA or whatever. But... Um, so the one week title change is a big, like, look, Baba paid Briscoe 10 grand to do it or, or, and to race too. just a little quickie, 10 that, grand. Yeah. That, that uh, was, that, now that I was... could, now I could, now I could say I'm the champion. Plus you have the hot return match. So it, it's like a little quickie deal, but I don't qualify that as a world championship reign. However, looking at the big picture, I think that was the best case scenario for Memphis. 
because I don't see Lawler as a as a full reign NWA world champion, especially back in those days, especially with his size, and especially with the lack of prestige that Memphis held in the greater wrestling world in those days. That's taken nothing away from Lawler, because I will state that I'm a giant fan of his, and he can talk better than anyone in the history of wrestling, but I don't see him as an NWA champion in the late 70s or early 80s. Yeah, but if you if you talked, you know, I if talked to Briscoe, talked to Bachwinkle, they all put him over. Said he absolutely huh. could could have done it. Um, and and not I mean, and if you look at all the way that the way that law because the champion's job was really to take a lot of punishment, make the other guy look good, and nobody right. did that better than Lawler. True, um, true. I, and I he mean, was amazing. I know it's been stated before. I know Cornette always talks about it. Oh my God, people! The bumps that Jerry Lawler used to take oh, all the throughout break, the yeah. '70s and even yeah. into the '80s, uh, he was a very underrated worker. He's completely at ease in front of any crowd, any situation. He is, you know, he's professional wrestling personified. He's truly one of the all-time greats, just based on natural instinct and ability. He, so let me just know, say that. So yeah. I'm sorry, King. I don't see an NWA reign because I'm raised on Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk and all that. I mean, oh, yeah. Harley Race and Dusty Rhodes and all <laughs> like, that. Like the technical not Dusty. Like I don't count Dusty yeah. as a classic. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. count Dusty as a classic <laughs> champion either by any stretch. But, um, and Dusty's reign in Florida, did that help him or hurt him? I think it had to be done because just like you said, all the time, how many times have I gone to a match as a kid where Dusty is promising that he's going to win the NWA title from Terry Funk, from Harley Race, and every week, just like you said, it's a DQ, it's a ref bump. As a kid, nine, ten years old, here comes the ref bump. Oh, my God, we just got screwed again. And I didn't even have the verbiage or the vocabulary to say that. But at the right. time, I knew it. Like, oh, here we go. Yeah. You know? Yeah, And anytime, anytime a Lawler... Uh, match for the world title went past the 30 minute mark. Fans are looking at their watches like, oh, gotta be a time, <laughs> gotta be a time limit draw right. here, you know. Right. Uh, although I think uh, when Tux Newman debuted in Memphis to get the heat on him, and te- <laughs> technically Bachwinkle was at the AWE World Champion, it was Rick Martel, but they decided to bring Bachwinkle in anyway, saying that he had beaten <laughs> Martel for the belt. Uh, he and Lawler went 42 minutes uh, before Tux Newman came down there. And uh, nice little screw job ending here with uh, Lawler hitting yeah. the fist drop and the bell rings. And they've gone 42 minutes. Maybe the refs lost a little track of time. And so he stops counting and thinking it's the time limit draw. But it was actually Tux Newman ringing the bell. So, uh, ah. uh-huh. so Bachwick retained the title that he did not actually own. If that makes any the, sense, and and yeah. also in hindsight, I would say the AWA was a much better fit for Lawler because they were more amenable to the schedule of having the champion available. If I recall, um, it was hard to get dates on the NWA champion, especially seeing as how they didn't want him to work all the smaller towns. Yeah, and Memphis consisted yeah. of a lot of smaller towns, and so that was never really going to work in the long run because they're not going to come in and work Evansville and and Blythe Blythe or whatever. Well, it wouldn't have made any sense to do that. Uh, like Jerry right, says, right, right, exactly. Jerry says all these promoters were kind of marks for the world champion. He goes, you know, why, why would I bring him in? Uh, you know, maybe maybe Louisville makes sense, right? To, but right. he goes, that's why I could never get the Monday night dates because I wouldn't commit to like you know for. But I don't want I don't want Lawler wrestling for the world title in Evansville. 
Correct. Correct. You know what I mean? No, because it's like, okay, when there used to be a a bee house show in like Fort Pierce, Florida, which is not a major town, and it would be like, uh, say, a championship. They usually, a world champion usually didn't work that show, but if he did, it would be like Jack Briscoe against, uh, you know, like like Ali Bay the Turk. You're like you know the you know the title's not changing in Fort Pierce in front of three hundred people, so don't even right. bother to have a title match, you know? Although the world title did change hands in Gainesville when 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 Race won the title back from Tommy. I mean how many people I mean a thousand maybe if that? Is that Gainesville, Florida or Georgia? Georgia. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. One cool thing I will say about the the Tommy Rich uh Harley Race deal. Now, uh and this and I I I, I can't remember if I've explained cuz people have asked me about that. Why did that happen? How, why did it go down th- that way? And to me it makes perfect sense because Barnett knew that Dusty was getting it in June. Uh this is uh and this is uh, at, almost the beginning of of May of 81. This is April 27, 1981. Uh, he's fresh back from Memphis. The whole angle, the whole program. The reason why he left was his inability to beat race. He had this big sellout crowd at the Omni. He didn't win the belt, and then he left because he was despondent. And so he went back home, turned heel, the whole deal. Uh, so I think Barnett got with race and said, "Look, you know, this is the only way I'm going to get a chance to type this the storyline." Is if mm-hmm. Rich Rich gets the belt. So if, if you look at it from that standpoint, Tommy's likely never going to get it if he doesn't get it there. Uh, I just wish that he had been able to have the title in the studio in an interview with Gordon Soley. I do have an interview that he did with Freddie Miller on my YouTube channel. I think it's the only promo. Actually, I know it is the only promo where Rich is carrying the belt. And oh, Tom, Tommy's even got a sports jacket on, you know, and he's carrying <laughs> carrying the belt like flair, like he like he'd been practicing in front of a mirror with it. And uh, <laughs> and, and Freddie Miller's just marking out, but. Uh, they wrestled that night in Chattanooga, and it was actually a, a last-minute uh, advertisement in the local newspaper saying that Tommy was defending the title against Nikolai Volkov. They could have switched that to race and had race win it then, and then race was leaving the area. So I just—that's uh, the only thing. That's the, that's the thing that screwed up the uh, the rich thing. I think it would have mattered more had he been able to come out in front of that TBS audience and then and nationwide. Uh, people watching right. on cable as as the champion, but instead we find out that he that he's, he's won it but lost it back, and we don't even get to see him with the belt. Uh, although that interview right. with, with Freddie Miller aired on the Sunday Best of Show, which is how uh, I wound up with it. But it's a, it's a it's a just a it's a funny thing because Tommy's like stumbling through it. And he goes, uh, "It's just the greatest high I've ever experienced," which you know. <laughs> Covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, if I could say one crucial difference between the Tommy Rich one week and the Dusty Rhodes one week is that I think that the Dusty Rhodes one week reign really was like a climax for the Florida fans because they have been with Dusty for so long and it was at a make it or break it point and Dusty was synonymous with Florida wrestling. So it would be like, oh my God, if he doesn't win the belt by now, the whole promotion is lying to us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they had to give the fans a bone. Tommy Rich didn't spend five years trying to get to the world championship. He was hot, and he, but he was also interchangeable with some other people at that point in time. He was red hot, no doubt, yeah. one of the top three baby faces in the country. Um, but with Dusty, it was almost, a, we have to put the belt on him 
to satisfy the fans to show everyone this is not complete bullshit. We we got to give you this. Yeah, and it did, and, uh, Rich, and and at least Richard Peck. In fact, go ahead. At, at least they got a hot angle out of it in Florida. With with you know, Dusty comes in wearing the belt. The fans are going yeah, yeah. crazy. This is what they've always wanted to see. And then Funk comes in with the attack. And the aftermags are and the aftermags all you know. I there's this episode you know, issue of Inside Wrestling where the whole thing is about about the the craziest week in wrestling history. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they never because even by after standards, the finish sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's a match where the champion could lose the title uh, if he's disqualified. So Dusty is not not only breaks the, has a broken arm from this pre match attack, right. but he he races going for a pile driver and he accidentally back drops him over the top rope. And right, that's right. The, the NWA World Title changes hands on a DQ. I know that was such a cop out because how many matches have ended with I mean. Every Dusty Harley race match I ever saw ended with that same spot, except it involved a ref bump. And then, you know, just, it was, it was just a switch on their usual thing, but it was, it was worse than ever. It was really like egregious. But I think the fans would have been fine. Dusty, you know, God, my God, he had a broken leg. He puts up a valiant fight, but in the end he, he passes out from the pain and, and, and Harley pins him, but no, no, he can't do that. And then poor Logan. It's kind of a no brainer. You've, you've already got Terry (laughs) Funk interfering and stuff. You know, like, come on, you need to, you need to add a stipulation to that. Like he Dusty doesn't have enough stacked against him. And 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 why, and why Atlanta didn't? And why Georgia didn't do something? Uh, why they didn't tape that Gainesville match and have uh, I don't know what, uh, Buck Rollby or somebody whoever was a, the, one of the big heels there uh, at the time? I think I think uh, Frank Morrell was working as the angel. And what's really cool about that footage? And it's a shame that there was no photographer there when Rich wins the belt and he. Tackle he he R- Ronnie West hands it to him and Rich found out about twenty minutes before the match started that he's getting it right. Um, he he must be just going four years ago. I was plowing, I was digging ditches on Jerry Jarrett's <laughs> farm, and here I am yeah. with the, with the NBA World Title. He tackles Ronnie West and they tumble to the ring together and a wonderful unscripted impromptu move. I've never seen a wrestler celebrate so much with the referee. He was that happy. And the guy who yeah. picks him up is Andre the Giant, working a spot show in Augusta, who lifts Tommy up to nearly the ceiling of, uh, what was it, the the Bell Center in, in Augusta? Yeah, I don't know the building there. Yeah, whatever. But, oh my God, what a cover shot that would have been with, you know, with Andre lifting him up but instead we have this somewhat grainy footage which is also on my YouTube yeah. channel so uh so be <laughs> sure to uh to check that out and you can and you can also tell there's a little bit of friction there because Jim Crockett is there as solely as recapping this thing on WTBS the the switch back and forth and and Crockett you know had been pushing for Flair to get it <laughs> and so and now he's there to I don't know it's like salt in the wound almost that Jim Crockett's there uh to congratulate Tommy for his yeah. brief title run uh cuz supposedly he was in Japan and when he heard about the title switch he immediately got on the first flight but by the time the plane landed Richard lost it back <laughs> yeah oh, oh oh but one one cool a fan from uh uh, I believe it was Columbus, Georgia, right? 
where uh, Rich had one of his few title defenses. He said, really cool thing, because back in those days, news traveled slowly. You know, uh, I feel like I'm singing bad news by Jerry Lawler. Um, but, uh, yeah, I said, bad news? No. Good news travels like, good news travels like wildfire. Well, good news. Bad news travels. No, bad news travels like wildfire. Good news travels slow. Which mm. explains, which explains. <laughs> Here it comes, folks. Well, there's a tie in there with Tommy Rich and the whole thing, but uh, it, I just. I right, just, right. Yeah, we'll fix that in editing. Uh, <laughs> Use your imagination, folks. Make your uh, own joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and now I can't remember at all where I was going with that point. Well, do we want to wrap up the uh, the TV show? I think we got to number three out of five TV matches. Oh no! Well, this or is whatever that, whatever yeah. list you were reading from there. This is the Coliseum show. Uh, Bill Dundee and Dream Machine, who I mentioned earlier, uh, evolved in a red hot feud between uh, with uh, Wayne Ferris and Kevin Sullivan. In this case, they won the Southern Tag Team Titles, and man, those those Southern Tag Team Titles bounced around like ping pong balls uh, every week. It almost seemed like they were changing hands. And then a classic Memphis gimmick: the two ring triple chance battle royal. Uh, and you have, it's, it's interesting because you have all these men in there, guys like Plowboy Frazier, Sonny King, the dream machine, and who wins the little scrappy bulldog build on D. <laughs> uh, and then we have Roy Rogers. who was actually starting to, to get over. Now this is of course, Johnny rich, uh, while they, oh boy, while they saddled him <laughs> with the name Roy Rogers, uh, uh, I'll never quite get, but uh, he beats Jimmy Hart via DQ, and then the big main event, the Funk Brothers, funking up my birthday by defeating Briscoe and Lawler, and in this one, Funk throws powder in Lawler's eyes, an eye for an eye, if you will, enabling uh, Dory to wrap the King up in a small package for the victory. And I remember walking out of the Coliseum and I was very despondent and my uncle Robert looked down and he said, what's wrong? And I, and see, I, this is why I think I would have loved the way Florida wrestling was presented with it, all the emphasis on the titles and the rankings and all that. And I said, well, I just thought that was a big opportunity for Lawler to take a bit, you know, you're in there with three former <laughs> NWA champions. And, and if you get the pin, it's gonna hurt his standing. Yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt his standing now. Yes, yes, yes. I I and uh, I, I just remember it. And and my uncle tried to pacify me. And he goes, No, 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 no. This is gonna go down as a loss in the tag books. And I went, Oh, uh, okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. All right. All right. I, I, I can I can I can live with that, but uh, that was a that, that was this the ultimate every year the highlight of my birthday was going to the matches with um, with my uncle Robert and I so because my no one else would take me my dad went once and swore he would never go back <laughs> and uh, I just really appreciate you uncle Robert because I know you occasionally listen to the podcast and um, we're gonna have him on uh, very soon one day to uh, to talk about those memories. Well. Howard, as usual, man, this has flown by uh, like a wonderful episode of Saturday Morning Wrestling. Uh, as always, I enjoy talking to you. And man, we are things are about to pick up because we're going to continue a look at 1981. And this is this is sort of when I think Jarrett realizes why am I bringing in Terry and Dory and Jack, which can't be very cheap. 
when I can use what I have here with with Kevin Sullivan, Jimmy Hart, Lawler, you know, all these guys who are so over, they end up having one of the biggest summers ever. And it really kicks into gear starting the following week. The seeds for the big gang war of 81 starts very soon right after this. And the houses really start picking up. They have consecutive sellouts, I think, in June and July. And the, and by far, 1981, most entertaining year of Memphis television, followed closely by 1982, in my opinion. Wow, that is some strong words. And I will say that I've been doing my homework and I've been looking at some 1981 and filling in some gaps in my Memphis knowledge, which are not many, but they exist. And I have to say, I am entertained and surprised by some of the things I've been seeing and um, giving, looking at a whole bunch of guys with a whole new set of eyes. And I will say, folks, that in the next couple of episodes or whenever we get around to discussing it, this is going to be a period of some of my personal favorite angles that are going to be coming up with Jimmy Hart and his army against Lawler and other um, factions that, as Scott said, some of the greatest angles, mic work, matches, and incidents, and we're going to be here to cover it for you. I mean, and it really embodies the uh, booking philosophy. You know, we always, you know, it sounds cliche, the whole thing with Jarrett and Lawler having that sign, personal issues, draw money. This is the perfect example. This summer is the perfect example of that and how well that formula worked because it was clicking on all cylinders, not just in Memphis, but around the territory. Just a huge money year for the promotion. They didn't even bring in the world champion at all that year. They didn't need it. Who cared? You had this gang war going on. It was just incredible. And uh, and and I will have to say, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to discussing the promos of Kevin Sullivan during this time period because they are so mm-hmm. unique. Very, very unique. He's the only one who's, I think, ever called Jimmy Hart James. And... Mm-hmm. Just the backhanded compliments and the way he would present his interviews. Uh, he's one of those guys who I think went into the territory, saw what everybody else was doing, and said, I'm going to do something different. And uh, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm just trying to whet your appetite for what lies ahead on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. We'll be right back with more right after this. Everybody say we sneaky Jeff. Jarrett said that we call it Jeff. I tell you what, we not call it or sneaky Jeff. We are Imperial Supreme Japanese. We tell you now. I, I'm going to do now. Oh, if no. Jeff Jarrett comes in the TV today, I'm going to beat him up and I'm going to paint his back yellow streak and I'm going to beat his back with his belt like a dog. And you don't need that paint in there. Why don't you just get it out of here? Jerry Jarrett, bring his retarded son. I tell you what, I'm going to beat him up with his bull whip and whack him in his back, and I'm going to paint this yellow behind his back. Yeah, and well, then he, he is a yellow because he, he looks like a dog anyway. He looks like the yellow dog. Yeah, you just keep making comments about Jerry Jarrett. But now, you know he's my two imperial, imperial wrestlers going in there, we're going to beat them like a dog, and we're going to paint this yellow streak behind their back. It's my show. 
Why don't you guys just leave the paint? Tojo, take the paint out of here. Now, you don't need that paint in here. Boy, I'll tell you what, he's already cost Tracy Smothers his Mid-America title today. Brings in a bucket of paint in the, in the belt. Okay, Davey, we're big foot to the side of Jeff Jameson, and they pound, pound, down on Jeff Jarrett, Pat Tanaker out here. Oh, no, Jeff! Why, I, <laughs> uh, pardon me for laughing, I, I gotta tell you. Stop it. Yeah, they're stopping the match. Uh-oh. Referee has just stopped the match. Okay, come on, come on. Pat Tanaka hit on the head with that paint can, and now he is just killed. Yamamoto with the yellow paint all over him. Where Jeff Jarrett and Tanaka sneaked up behind him. Tojo holding Jeff and beating Tojo. Tanaka is unconscious and Goto still kicking on him. As Yamamoto alternately hitting him with that. Come on, Tojo! Look at it, Jerry! Calhoun, I don't blame him. He's steering clear of these crazy guys. Sato holding Jeff, and Tojo just continues to batter on him. Hits him with a kendo stick. And Yamamoto just continues to batter away. And Goto Come on, can't we get some help out here? This is Cap Randy. No, there's not in the studio. Water is left. Where? Jerry's gone. How about Tracy? Anybody? Can we get? Let's get some help. Eddie. Here comes Eddie Marlin. Uh-oh. Goto drops him down there. Tojo! Will you get away from there? Get out of here. Take that shot. Coward. That's time. You see what I mean? beat him no. out with a stick in there, and you hit him with a belt. Left him no, out I'm going to beat him. He's father. You understand? Yeah, you know. Where he did it, Where he's a college unit in? Yeah, he doesn't happen to be here today, and I'll tell you, you wouldn't be doing it. Will you guys quit that? Come on. Sato, Goto, leave him out. Get out of here. Boy, I'm telling you. You better get him back. They beat on him terrible. Oh, man. God, watch his back, Eddie. Watch his back. This is uncalled for. Well, you're right. Uncalled for. He's calling everybody dirty cowards. He's got two choices. He can come out here right now and fight me. Come on, now, Eddie. Eddie. Get him out here. No. Get him out here, Tim. That's not the way to handle it, Eddie.
Eddie's talking about firing Tojo if he doesn't come out, but I don't think that's a way to handle it. You need to help Jeff out of here. Eddie Marlin saying get Tojo out here. He's not out here by the count of 10. He's fired. We need to help Jeff out of here. Come on, Eddie. Get him another time. Jeff. Well, Yamamoto's not out here, Eddie. You can get him. fired, but that's not going to save him from getting his beating. He's going to get his beating right no, here. No, come on, Eddie. Come no. Eddie! I'll tell you, what a mess. This is... Well, thanks to Yamamoto and all of them. We come up here, we got the paint in here. They were going to paint somebody on the back. They ended up getting it uh, dumped over Tojo, which we don't approve of in here. All right, Tojo. We've had enough. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Hey, come on, Where Tojo. Is he? Where is the now fuck? Listen. Where is the fuck? Where is he? Let go of me now. I'm telling you. I'm going to tell you one thing. You're just about to get yourself sued. Wait till Eddie Martin runs out of there. Then you come back in. He's not looking for you. You're going to get cheers. Oh, boy. As Eddie comes through the ropes, Tojo hits him with salt right in the eye. Hey, what are you guys doing? Keep these guys out of here. At least that, I mean, one-on-one. Tojo is busting Eddie wide open. We need some help. This thing is just totally out of control. And Lawler's not back there? Get him out of here! Get him out of here! Come on, Jerry! Come over and beat him on the head for pulling that. Jumping up there. I'm telling you what, Tojo. You are nothing but trash. Yeah, you're just trash. You're a disgrace to your own people. Come up there and do that. You never did a decent one-on-one -on -one thing. I'm embarrassed they even ever thought that you were a friend. Get, just get out of here. Can we get some help and get this thing straightened out and get these guys out of here? I want to tell you, Tojo. Yeah, I see what you did. You see how you did it, too. You're a disgrace to your people. Oh, get out of here. I just got to tell you. See if they can help. Hey, come on, Tojo. I told you to get on out of here. Get on out of here. I'm going to tell you one thing. You can beat me up. I'll sue you. I'll get you in criminal court. They'll have you. Now, you get out of here, and I'm telling you what. Don't put your hands on me.
And welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And I want to thank my tag team partner, Howard Baum, for offering his insights with very limited interruptions. On that note, uh, there was one story that I started, and then Howard and I got to talking, and I forgot what I was talking about, uh, in reference to the week that Tommy Rich held the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, Although... You know, it really stinks that he did not get that in-studio interview in front of the TV audience with Gordon Soley. Uh, Pretty cool. A fan wrote to me from, I believe it was Columbus or Rome, Georgia, one of the few title defenses that Tommy made that week against race. Uh, You know, uh, news traveled really slow back then, and all the boys were instructed not to stooge off the news to the fans uh, about uh, Tommy winning the 10 pounds of gold. And so when it's time for the, for the main event and, you know, you have to figure they're in a packed small arena in Columbus and rich and race both go to the ring in full length robes. And they announce in the corner, the champion, Tommy Wildfire Rich, and he undoes the robe, and he's got the belt on. And they say, the fans just went unglued. I mean, it was just utter chaos. The fans were just absolutely joyous. And I think they repeated it in in, uh, Rome, Georgia, and also the night that he dropped it in Gainesville, which I believe is one of the few NWA world title switches that was never taped. Uh, it was also a shame that that they did not have Bill Aft there to get a shot of Andre the Giant hoisting Tommy Rich up in the air, almost to the ceiling of the Bell Auditorium, holding the 10 pounds of gold. Would have been a great, great cover shot, no doubt. Ah, well, this has been a Power Pack show. We want to thank our sponsors, as always, MemphisWrestlingTees.com. Uh, just kidding. I own that. Uh, if you would like to support the show, we have some very cool, very macho new shirts that just dropped. You'll have to check them out. It's just a fun way to show your support for good old KFR. Just want to remind you that KFR is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Traff Scott Bowden. You can follow Howard at Howard M. Baum. That's B-A-U-M. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden saying so long. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>